Man, Jay, I still can't believe Wolverine married Viper. Well, it wasn't entirely voluntary, Miles. She called in a debt of honor. What did she get out of it anyway? Well, she was banking on Wolverine's reputation in Madripoor making it easier for her to take over the island. Did it? Um, uh, not as much as his ability to impersonate several Avengers, X-Men, and members of the Fantastic Four. Wait, Wolverine did that? The guy who thought putting on an eye patch was a good disguise. All at once. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 438 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a veritable cornucopia of mutant stuff. We we plan our episodes well before we write them, um, and sometimes it turns out, like, we put a bunch of stuff in here, and then it's too late and we have to do the episode. But I'm very excited about, like, all of it, so I feel fine about that. Yeah, this is a good batch of comics. It's it's a slightly slightly disconnected batch of comics, or at least partially disconnected, or at least some of them are disconnected, or at least one is disconnected from the other two. Yeah, to uh, offer a glimpse behind the X-Plane curtain. So, you know, we know roughly how much content we want to cover in an episode. Um, and sometimes the way the different story arcs work, we don't have enough regular issues. So, like, right now we have an issue of Uncanny and an issue of Adjectiveless X-Men, and they go together. But, like, that's not enough for an episode. So we looked around and found this Wolverine one-shot that came out around this time and figured, oh, that could fill it in. We weren't expecting it to be a goddamn delight, though. Oh, it's so much fun. I'm honestly, I gotta say, for me, it kind of overshadowed the two X-Men issues. Uh, that is fair, and I think that's why we should probably uh, talk about that one last. And that's not to say that the X-Men issues are, aren't good. They are good. This is a, Yeah, a, they're very good issues. It's just that the Wolverine book is just utterly delightful. Oh yeah, he wears shorts and fights a shark. We'll get there. I mean, I guess, yeah, at the same time. At the same time, yes. he fights a shark yeah, while wearing shorts. Mm -hmm. The shark is not wearing shorts. No, no, not after Wolverine gets done with him anyway. So anyway, we're mostly talking about X-Men stuff. So let's give some context. Let's talk about what happened wearing shorts or not previously on X-Men. Did you just imply that Wolverine fucked a shark to death? God, I hope not. I hope it was consensual and loving. And not death. Maybe their fight to the death was a lover's quarrel after their relationship fell apart. Anyway, uh, after some major shakeups from the Operation Zero Tolerance crossover, the X-Men are surprisingly classic again. Which is kind of a shame, because the two brief additions to the team, uh, Dr. Cecilia Reyes and Maggot, were actually kind of rad. But they're gone now. Uh, as far as the new members, the X-adjacent Super Team Excalibur recently disbanded when their own comic ended, which means that Bronze Age X-Men members Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Shadowcat are back on their original team after many years away. More for Nightcrawler and Shadowcat than Colossus, but still, a while. They've joined other Bronze Age members, Storm, Wolverine, and Rogue, along with one new recruit. Marrow, a former Morlock, um, who is very ornery and very spiky and has the ability to grow extra bones and chuck them at people. Missing from that list is the somewhat more recent team member, Gambit. See, 
Due to a complicated mock trial run by a disguised Magneto in Antarctica, long story, the X-Men found out Gambit's dark secret. I mean, it was an actual trial. It just was an extra-legal trial. Uh, True. I mean, it wasn't like an official trial, is my point. Uh, I don't think Magneto counts as a judge, except in this sort of, uh, you know, judgmental way. Yeah, but it wasn't like put on for the benefit of local high school debate students. Although that would have been a fun story, too. As far as Gambit, though, apparently back in the day, he was hired by Mr. Sinister for a job that ended up enabling the Mutant Massacre, the first X-Men crossover in which hundreds, if not thousands, of Morlocks were, you know, massacred. When the X-Men found out that it was Gambit who was responsible for crossovers run amok, they weren't sure quite how to respond, except for Rogue, who made the difficult call to strand Gambit alone in Antarctica which was later retconned to have been a result of her having absorbed his self-loathing instead of her being immensely out of character and kind of evil. Also, sometimes Wolverine goes off and does his own thing, per usual. In shorts. Not that, but the part before brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 361, Thieves in the Temple. Written by Steve Siegel, penciled by Steve Scross. I looked up how to pronounce his name. It's really hard to find solid information. But anyway, he penciled it. Inked by Tim Townsend, Scott Hanna, Rob Hunter, and Harry Candelario. Colored by Shannon Blanchard and lettered by Comicraft. Um, This one's actually really fun uh, because two Steves were the primary creators, Steve Siegel and Steve Scross. Uh, They put the name Steve for everybody in the credits, which does mean that this is lettered officially by Steve Comicraft. Steve Comicraft is my favorite letterer. It's kind of got a Frank Punisher vibe, huh? Oh, extremely. I also wanted to come back to the subject of pronunciation because I think you mispronounced a word in the title. Oh, you're right. Based on what's going on in this issue, it should be Teeves in the Temple. Indeed. Uh, to talk briefly about the creative team a little more, though, Steve Scross, his work is great. Uh, I know him most as being the creator of X-Man. He also did some some Cable. Um, but also, like, outside the Marvel Universe, he does the storyboards for a lot of the Wachowski sisters' movies, like The Matrix, Speed Racer, all sorts of stuff. Hot damn. Yeah, pretty cool, right? His pencils are pretty great, very characteristic, which, like, you can always tell it's his stuff, um, which for an issue with so many inkers is interesting, because then you can really tell the inkers apart. We've we've got, yeah, some cover copy in the second person, and I'm curious as to whom it's addressed, because it says, because you demanded it, the return of Gambit. I mean, I can see that being readers, Gambit's very popular, but based on what we know about this era, it could very well have been, like, Toy Biz or something, given how many fingers were in the pie of ex-editorial. Because you, Bob Harris, demanded it. He's the Steve-in-chief, according to the uh, credits, by the way. So I think we should probably start with the B-plot, because I love Rogue and Gambit, and I love good narration. In a world full of secrets, the sun still rises, the wind still blows, her heart still pounds, but not as brightly, with a chill, and skipping a beat as long as she is without him. Feelings. I love feelings. Yeah, Rogue has been looking around for Gambit after she was quasi-psychically mutant power forced to abandon him in Antarctica, and she's uh, pretty messed up. And you know what that means? When someone's in relationship distress of any sort, Uncle Wolverine will be right the fuck there. 
Wolverine, vigilante couples counselor. As they talk, Rogue's a bit defensive. Who said I wanted him back? You did. Your eyes. Your mouth. The way you hold a fork when you eat. Ah, yes. The fork of loneliness. If I didn't already know what this episode title was probably going to be, I'd suggest that one. One of the things I love about superhero comics is that emotions can come out in a lot of ways. Punching. Explosions. Forks. Forks! And costumes. So lately, Rogue has reverted to one of her very old costumes, which is green with white trim. She was wearing costumes kind of like that during her very brief supervillain days when she was working for her mom's Mystique and Destiny. Interestingly, those are the costumes that she's going to adopt much later, I think, in the aughts and teens, kind of to mark a further evolution of her character. In this case, though, I dig it, because she's been in a very uncertain, lonely, and longing place lately, which is kind of where she was in those days. So returning to that outfit, I dig it. But the rest of the X-Men are scrapping. They're getting their feelings out that way. Uh, because apparently Marrow has stolen Colossus's sketchbook. Uh, it comes up that she's really pissed that she's been kicked out of her bedroom now that it needs to be the danger room again. Apparently, she was staying in the danger room. Didn't look that way last time we saw it. This is like if you move into someone's bathtub and then get upset, upset because they want to shower. Like, there are a lot of bedrooms in this mansion, Marrow. You know, I think Marrow would totally do that. But it turns out the reason that Mero stole the sketchbook was not as revenge. It's because it's pretty, and she likes pretty things. And I like this contrast with Mero. She's tough as nails, she's a total jerk, but she also likes pretty things, and is, like, kind of boy-crazy sometimes. Well, she's also very derogatory of pretty things and people in her, her public presentation. Um, very but, much but so. secretly has has this 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 immense craving and softness for that, which I think um is pretty well exemplified by her obsession with Angel, which we've discussed earlier. One hundred percent. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And now that secret is out to at least a small extent, she admits it, which I think is a small, small sign of her starting to open up, even if she's still threatening to murder everyone while she does. And so later, Colossus heads down to her new bedroom that she's staying in to give her a gift and accidentally walks in on her in front of what seems to be a shrine of just like pictures of attractive people looking happy. And she is mortified and furious. And she, she immediately kicks him out and he slips the sketch that he drew for and of her under her door. And it's very sweet. It is very sweet. I, I love these crazy kids. It really blows my mind what a natural and perfect addition Marrow has been to the team. Like, I won't lie, earlier on in this podcast, before I was really familiar with this era, I was kind of derogatory toward uh, Cecilia, Maggot, and Marrow and the entire era. But Marrow has ended up being one of my very favorite members of the X-Men. I was not expecting that. And now I'm all disappointed that she just disappears for years and years and years for so much of the modern era. I'm disappointed that Colossus never ends up mentoring her. Because he is, he is a character who I, whom I think setting up mentor-mentee relationships would have been a really, really interesting and really divergent evolution from where he was actually taken. And I think it would have, would have made for a really, really interesting story hook for both of them. 
completely agree that would have been a good way for him to grow as a character instead of just continuing to experience untold tragedy over and over and over you were talking about scrosa's art and i think marrow is so marrow is one of those characters who i sort of look to as a basis on which to judge artists because she's a character who's not supposed to be pretty in a medium where the default is to make all female characters very conventionally attractive 100 percent and Scross does a really terrific job making her look gnarly and very disfigured, but and, and very much not conventionally attractive, but also very expressive and very human isn't quite the word I'm after, obviously, but you get the idea. Personish? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Scross really treads that line almost perfectly. So that's our B-plot, just some, you know, behind-the-scenes X-drama. But our A-plot has way more punching and zapping, because in Korea, Storm is fighting a bunch of masked and armored warriors dozens of feet above the streets of Seoul. There's also a really, really great little trick that um, that Siegel uses on this page that's one of those things that's a little too precious sometimes, but that I really enjoy when it's used well, which is having the narration lead directly into a character saying something and then have that lead back directly back into the narration. Um, I feel like it's, it's again, it, it can come across as a little too precious. It can be overdone. Here, it's just fun. Siegel's also good at treading that particular line. Uh, the fight scenes are great. Scross does incredible momentum-y, motion-y uh, visuals. And the fight is against the cult of Sidorak. Jay, it's been a while since we talked about Sidorak. You want to briefly recap? Okay, so Sidorak is a god of destruction and oblivion. He is, um, his avatar on Earth is the unstoppable juggernaut, uh, the role taken on by whoever bears the crimson gem of Sidorak in this case, and usually Cain Marco. Exactly. Uh, so as for what they're up to, we'll get to that momentarily, but it's not just Storm fighting. Shadowcat, Kitty Pride, is here too, teaming up with Storm. This is something we haven't seen in a long time, because remember, Kitty was on Excalibur for its entire freaking history. And they are back together, like, it really just shows their long history and friendship. Kitty's playfully taunting the warriors as she fights them, but she's also sort of playfully taunting the more serious Storm. There's this, I don't know, mother-daughter or maybe big sister-little sister at this point dynamic they have that just feels so natural. I, I was waiting for Storm to call her kitten, and she never did, but it, it wouldn't have been terribly out of place. I almost wonder if that's because, you know, she recognizes that Kitty's grown up a bit, but I don't know. It's comics. Everybody keeps those epithets, like, forever. Or it's life, and everyone who knew you as a kid keeps calling you by your childhood nickname until you get in a real big fight about it. My stepdad still calls me per hour, but, but I find it really charming, so I will never tell him to stop. As for why they're here, well, they were brought here by Black Tom Cassidy. Wait a minute. So speaking of characters into whose backgrounds we should probably delve a little bit, Black Tom Cassidy is the cousin of Sean Cassidy, best, better known as Banshee. Black Tom, on the other hand, is a villain. He um, wields a shillelagh. He has the power to control wood. Not a euphemism. And he has more expansive plant-based powers sometimes. He is also 
engaged in a very, very committed but somewhat undefined relationship with Kane Marco, the juggernaut. And in fact, that's why Storm and Shadowcat are here, because Black Tom has begged them to help his friend. See, Kane got lured to Korea by promises of a second gem of Sidorak that could make him, like, I don't know, doubly juggernaughty, like Juggernaut Squared or something. Although, wait a minute, there was always J2? That was from that other universe where there was, like, a kid juggernaut? You know what? Unrelated. Let's not worry about it. Point is, it was a trap, and really, this cult was just trying to siphon out Juggernaut's Juggernaut power and put it in their gem so that they could do Juggernaut stuff. And Black Tom wants to save his now very sick, very weak bro-TP slash whatever. Black Tom, who, by the way, apparently did not die at the end of Gen X number 25, it's comics, let's not worry about it. The strength of his love for Juggernaut revived him. I mean... That makes sense to me. Look, I feel about these two the way I do about Storm and Yukio, which is to say, if they were a man and a woman, no one would question whether they were canonically in a romantic relationship. Completely agreed. Juggernaut, though, despite that undying love, is uh, is in fact doing pretty badly. He's broken out of where he was recovering, and he's just causing chaos out in the streets, tossing cars around and picking up buildings. But, like, also, he's visibly messed up. He's drenched in sweat. His muscles are kind of, like, hanging loose on his body, and he's he's smaller than he used to be. He's still huge, but he's not as huge as he was, which you can tell because, like, his costume is hanging off of him. Like, he really just does look—I I think the word you look, used when we were talking about him, Jay, was diminished. Yeah, yeah. I expected things to go in a different direction with him. Like, I thought when they first show, showed him that he was trying to get himself killed. I don't think so, yeah. That would have been a reasonable direction to go with the character, but nah, he's just trying to cause as much destruction as he can before he inevitably dies. And so Storm and Shadowcat are trying to stop him from, you know, destroying Soul without killing him but they're having a hard time doing so. Thankfully, it turns out they're not alone. That's right. Uh, This is Gambit's cue to ride a motorcycle off a tall building, um, down the chunk of the building the Juggernaut is lifting, flip his bike around in the air off the building as he tosses a handful of charged playing cards and hits Juggernaut in the face. Say what you will about Gambit. He's a man who knows how to make an entrance. He sure does. And remember, this is the first time any of the X-Men have seen him, like, since the whole thing in Antarctica. So I feel like, I mean, I don't think he could have planned for exactly this, but I feel like he planned for a bunch of different uh, possibilities for his return, and this was, like, one of them. Do you think he just tries to enter every fight he enters incredibly, incredibly dramatically just in case the X-Men are there? I'm gonna say definitely. I mean, I think he does that anyway. Yeah, probably true. Dude, peacocks in every possible way, including entrances. Including hooting at cars when they honk their horns at him. Yeah, so listeners, um, the town that Jay and I spent most of our collective childhoods and adolescences in um, had a bunch of peacocks that had escaped from, like, nearby uh, botanical gardens. Sarasota Jungle Gardens! You gotta name- we, we, gotta, we gotta actually shout out Sarasota Jungle Gardens, because it is an amazing roadside attraction. It's actually pretty great, yeah. And it's in the neighborhood where I grew up. But their peacocks regularly escaped. Actually, a lot of things regularly escaped from there. There were 
flocks of 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 conures and like invasive species. Um, they like single handedly upset the local ecosystem. It's amazing. Um, great park. So um, the peacocks would escape and they'd just hang out in in Bayshore Road, which is this fairly large road. And the thing about peacocks is that they fear nothing, nothing. Like they're they're just they're they're extremely stupid. I, I gather I haven't had much up close personal experience with them, and and just extremely stubborn. But also the noises they make, and especially the noises they make when they are uh, looking for action, sound a lot like car horns, which makes it singularly difficult to clear them out of roads. They're they're just so terrible and so pretty, but so terrible. Those noises, though, yeah. Um, listeners, I'm not going to give context. Look up love honk. Trust me. Anyway, all of that aside, um, now that there are three good guys and one of them is, you know, fancily peacocking around in the streets and making car horn noises, I assume, uh, they beat Juggernaut. And like you were mentioning, Jay, this is Gambit's first return to the X-Men, and so it's interesting the way he comes off. He's kind of like his old self from early on his days in the team. He's self-assured, but distant. He's charming, but closed off. Like, he just comes off as, like, kind of charismatic, smooth, jerk thief guy. And in fact, that's why he's here. He's here to steal that gem and, I don't know, sell it, presumably. Steal that gem sounds like the name of a game show. Steal that gem! Kitty introduces herself here, and, like, for a moment, I believed that this was their first time meeting until I remembered, wait a minute, they've met, like, a bunch of times. I mean, never, you know, too intensely, but they've overlapped in multiple crossover issues here and there. Like, I know Kitty was on Excalibur for a long time, but Excalibur was just on a different continent, like, not a different universe. On one hand, as someone who is fairly severely face-blind, I am inclined to be sympathetic to the experience of introducing yourself to people you've already met. On the other hand, Gambit is, is singularly recognizable through a number of features that have nothing to do with his face. Gambit be unforgettable. Gambit's outfits certainly be unforgettable. It's true, it's true. So, anyway, this is our team of X-Men for the issue, and off they go to the Temple of the Cult of Sidorak on an island off the coast of Korea. Um, Juggernaut actually had a map to it folded up in his pants, but the way the coloring works, you can't really see the map because it's like the same color as his shirt, so it looks like everyone's just staring at his crotch. It's amazing. This is, this is of course, abetted by, by the fact that the only line of dialogue is Kitty demanding, What's that sticking out of Juggernaut's pants? So the temple is is the traditional yeah, B-movie temple in that it's surrounded by skulls on stakes, and it's extremely full of masked warriors, and there are some big crowded fights, and there's a pool of piranhas, and it's it's pretty silly. It's pretty great. So our heroes are very, very outnumbered, but they need to get this gem, so they decide to uh, split up, or rather they're kind of forced to by the fight, and it becomes this race. Is Gambit going to find the gem first and sell it, or will Storm find it to save the Juggernaut? Well, it turns out it's actually Kitty, who uh, comes out of a wall after escaping some piranhas and finds it, and sees a mural behind it of the world being destroyed because of this now-charged-up second gem. So she figures she should probably tell Storm what's up, and when Gambit arrives, says, Hey, can you watch this for a sec? I'll be right back. I guess because, at least in the context of this story, she doesn't know Gambit. 
despite the fact that he literally showed up and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to steal stuff. I want to steal. But later it turns that maybe Remy isn't such a jerk after all, because he does bring the gem back to repower the juggernaut. And when Kitty invites him onto the team, he says, no, no, I can't come back. Until Storm gently scolds him and reminds him that, dude, people have to work their shit out. And I love this. Because, as you may remember, Gambit met Storm when she was a child. Like, when she was de-aged artificially into a child, it was a, it was a whole thing. But at that point, it was a big brother-little sister relationship. And now it seems to have kind of reversed, the same way that Storm and Kitty's dynamic has changed a bit. And that works. Like, Gambit listens to Storm, and in fact he says, yeah, okay, okay, you're right. I'll at least work things out with Rogue. I'll at least do that. You better. And that brings us to X-Men number 81, Jack of Hearts, Queen of Death, and or Jack of Queen of Hearts Death, depending on how you read the title page. This ambiguously titled issue is written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Adam Kubert, inked by Mark Farmer, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Adam Kubert is one of multiple Kuberts in the comics world. His brother's Andy, who's also done a ton of X-Men. Their dad is Joe, who's done, like, a bunch of stuff and runs a school, or ran a school. But, yeah, Kubert does a great job with this one. Um, this issue, in general, is really good. It's always standard in X-Men, I think in a lot of comics, to have sort of a quiet issue where the characters are just hanging out and interacting, following any big reveal or big event or whatever. In this case, this is the team catching up after Gambit's return. Uh, plus, there's like a one-off villain fight, which is always good for quiet issues, just to throw some punching in there. It's a quiet villain fight. It's not, I lied, it's not a quiet villain fight at all. No, that villain, like, villain speechifies quite a bit, but we're not there yet. We are in the Danger Room. We get a classic X-Men Danger Room opening, which often open quiet issues. This is a good chance to get to know all the characters, their powers, their names, etc., but the lens through which we see it is Marrow, who thinks the whole thing is stupid and is just crossing her arms, holding bone daggers, looking very intimidating and frowning. She's such a teenager. She is such a teenager. As for the danger room, this is kind of an older school danger room, you know? There's the spiky traps version of the danger room we see sometimes, and then there's the Shi'ar hologram recreation of literally any environment danger room we see sometimes. This is the old school one with big tree trunks on chains slamming around, spiked balls, enormous nets, jagged terrain, barrels lined up on a stone wall. Huh. Wait, is is this a level of Donkey Kong? Oh, maybe Donkey Kong's going to throw those barrels. Well, we don't see it happen, but I, I choose to assume it does. But Jay, I'm wondering, what's your favorite version of the Danger Room? The spiky ball kind or the other galaxy Shi'ar hologram kind? I like the stupid danger room. Explain. I like, like, the original, original danger room. The danger room that's just set up to straight-up attempt to kill a bunch of teenagers. With, like, fire and pit traps and stuff. Like, it, it's the, 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 one, the one that kind of makes you wonder, why would you put this in your house? The one that makes you realize that Professor X really should have been put in jail immediately. I mean, as someone whose primary day job is, is anti-carceral work, I, I can't technically agree with that, but have perhaps prevented from acting in loco parentis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. 
So anyway, Gambit's training also. He's been living at the boathouse at Spuyten Divil Cove. Um, that's the place uh, where Scott and Jean were living after they got married before they fucked off to Alaska. And Rogue, wearing that green and white, finds him. And they just sort of freeze all romantically. And then she whispers he's probably going to blow his hand off because he's still holding up the charged cards from when he was surprised. And so he throws them in the water and he gets splashed and and pushes his hair out of his face with an expression looking like a uh, bemused Muppet. It's fucking great. This is, I think, the ideal reintroduction of Rogan Gambit for a, a number of reasons. The first is that it feels in, it's intensely awkward in ways that that would need to be. And specifically, it's awkward in ways that not Gambit off of his game. Exactly, and yeah. He's not cool collected, Gambit. I think for Gambit and Rogue to reunite effectively, Gambit's got to be vulnerable in ways that he is not currently allowing himself to be with any degree of preparation, which means he has to, again, be completely knocked off guard. Totally. And he's knocked off guard again when he pulls his hair out of his eyes and Rogue's gone and Logan's just standing there giving him romance advice because that's what Logan does. I'd like to imagine that somewhere out in the multiverse, in the infinite permutations of the Marvel Universe, there's one where Wolverine has all of his current characteristics, but is also by night an advice columnist. <laughs> Ask Jimmy H. I love this plan. Anyway, the other X-Men are catching up as well. Colossus is walking with his old friend Storm in her attic greenhouse. He's like in this casual outfit of loose clothing and sandals, and she's in this beautiful flowing dress and small cloak with her hair done up. I love seeing superheroes in casual clothing, like with their personalities and current states sort of emphasized by their fashion choices. Bold of you to assume that Storm owns anything that could be described as casual. They're is that, to be fair. But they catch up amid the plants and capes about their recent troubles and the various gossip, and Colossus alludes to having watched the woman he loved just marry someone else. Hey, Colossus was not in love with Megan. She was in love with him. That was like a major multi-issue plot point in Excalibur, grumble, grumble. Yeah, I was actually having trouble figuring out to whom he was referring until realizing that it was probably supposed to be Megan. Well, I guess if Excalibur got cancelled, not enough people were reading it, and apparently Joe Kelly wasn't either. Wolverine and Kitty are catching up as she throws knives at him into a tree around his head. That's how I like to catch up with my mentors. Legit. And that's the thing. Logan used to be Kitty's mentor, and everyone remembers them having that relationship, but she was gone for so many goddamn years. At this point, Logan's has spent way, way longer mentoring Jubilee than he ever did Kitty. And they talk about Kitty's distrust of Gambit, and Logan says, well, maybe he reminds you of that Pete Wisdom guy, which she counters with, yeah, well, you're married to Viper. I love that the X-Men keep on giving him shit over that, because they should. They, they absolutely should. But I like this Kitty on the team. She's warm and smart and a smartass, and she's clearly grown up a little since she was just a 13-year-old on the team. As for our focal couple, Rogue and Gambit, they head off to talk in Boston for some privacy. And it is awkward. Like, he's brought a white rose for her, and she asks if that's a symbol of death the way white lilies are and flies off. Um, actually, Rogue, according at least to the one Victorian floriography book I own, a white rose means, I quote, I am worthy of you. Oh, well, that's, um... Probably a little arrogant for the circumstances, honestly. You remember that time that Rogue and Gambit beat the hell out of each other in an old theater when they were unable to actually just have a conversation about their emotions? 
Yeah, yeah, they have fun. They do. And part of that fun is a fight, because they're attacked by a thin woman in a white and purple super outfit and skull mask who is covered in green sores and holding a big green energy halberd thing and speechifies at them. And the details honestly aren't important. It's a woman named Kali. She hears voices. They've told her to kill this perfect couple as a sacrifice to jumpstart her godhood. Uh, You know, whatever. She never shows up again. But... Having a common goal does give Rogue and Gambit a common challenge and also really brings out their emotions as they fight and as she keeps calling them lovers, and that forces them to actually talk about their shit. It is a really cool-looking fight. It gives Adam Kubert a chance to draw this great bit. Like, at one point, there's a panel where Gambit dodges one of Kali's blasts while throwing cards as Rogue flies out of the panel, and the next panel is Kali batting away those cards with her her halberd as Rogue flies at her from behind. Like, there's just this sense of movement. You can just feel the characters almost moving from one panel to the next. Yeah, Kubert uses a 360-degree canvas very, very well. For real. So they win the fight, and Gambit tells Rogue, now that they're actually talking, that it was his fault that she left. It was his aborted self-loathing, as we've established, but that he couldn't let himself die out there in the cold because he needed to see her again. And I love that Kali is just so pissed at the comic focusing on this couple as she says, No! No, 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 no! This is not about you two! This is about me! Sorry, lady. Uh, You remember this uh, part about this being your only appearance and you just being here to get characters we know to talk? Yeah, she uh, explodes and blows up this entire city block-sized church that she's in, which is uh, intense. Does she actually blow up the Christian Science Reading Room, or is that where she's just where she starts out? I think that's just where she starts out. I don't know. Some stuff blows up. Whatever. It's the Marvel Universe. Stuff blows up all the time. So she's out of the picture, and Gambit and Rogue talk. And Rogue says she's dreamed of this reunion, but in a number of different forms. In one version, you came crawling in like a dog. I punched you across the state and back, then walked away, free of your specter. The other, as you swooping in like hellfire, all eyes and arms and lips pulling me to you and telling me the past is the past and the future is open and you and you still love me like I still love you. Finish what you were going to say before. Please say it, Remy. But he can't say it and ultimately she flies away. And it turns out that the reason he couldn't say it was was not that he didn't feel it. It was because a woman made of green mist had cut off his ability to speak. Oh, yeah, and then this misty lady threatens to kill Rogue if Gambit ever touches Rogue again, because Gambit belongs to her, the misty lady. Um, This is Mary Purcell. She kind of sort of controls Gambit right now. He encountered her when he was trying to escape Antarctica. All of that's going to be revealed in, like, the Gambit 1999 annual in a while, but here it's just, what the fuck? Yeah, it's it's weird and exciting, but it, it's a good twist, and it's a good hook. It is. And this is what I love about superheroes. Like, feelings and punching and conversations that dramatically fall apart because of misty ladies from Antarctica who won't be explained for a year. It's great. But what I love about comics even more is Wolverine Black Rio. This is written by Joe Casey, penciled by Oscar Jimenez, inked by Eduardo El Puente, colored by Gina Going, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicrafts Emerson Miranda.
this art. Oh, damn, this art. Man, Jimenez and El Puente and, and going really just in combination are stunningly good. And, and Jimenez's Logan is just delightful because he is little and he is hairy. He's really hairy and he's ugly. Like he is, he is not people trying to make Wolverine look ruggedly handsome. He is really funky looking. He looks like a weird little gnome dude. And I, it's great. It's so great. And all of the art has that quality of not being like picture perfect pretty. And I don't, you know, I don't hate that as a concept. I love Alan Davis's art after all, but everyone's just so like imperfect and irregular and their skin's got like texture to it and and wrinkles and bumps. And yet that just makes them look more human and more just warm and tactile. It's so good. So Logan is headed to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, a city I first learned of from and still associate indelibly with the game Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Oh, now that freaking acapella theme song is going to be in my head from the game show. I don't think I ever actually saw the game show. Like, I just remember the the really, really ancient OG video game, the computer game. Like a lot of children's game shows of the time, they didn't have the budget to give away the prize very often at all. So mostly it was just really frustrating while you watched a bunch of kids lose. Wow, that's that's really harsh. Uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple was worse, but yeah. So Logan is specifically headed to Carnival, and this is, for those unfamiliar, a big old festival that precedes Lent. Um, Mardi Gras is similar, at least um, derived from similar roots, and Rio is home to the largest carnival in the world. We've talked about Carnival a couple times before. In episode 30, New Wave Super Teens in Love, Magma was there with the New Mutants and Lost Control, and in episode 377, Sam Hill, Domino went there. So... You don't really need to know very much about Carnival to follow this story, but I would like you all to know that Rio's Carnival's home base is called the Sambadrome. How excellent is that? That is fucking excellent. This is not apparently Logan's first time in Rio. Apparently he spent a year here a fairly long time ago. Back before I started keeping track of what year it was. Back before my life as a member of the X-Men. Back before folks began calling me Wolverine. Can we extrapolate a rough date or date range based on this? Well, sliding timeline, so I don't know, but I would guess somewhere around the time he was uh, doing, like, Alpha Flight stuff, you know, once his memory started working right and wasn't erased all the time, but before all the X stuff. His codename was Wolverine then, though. Oh, yeah, it was. Before it was just uh, that it was Weapon X. I don't know. I think we can just say Wolverine has an infinitely large past full of lots of stuff, and just leave it at that. Which is how it really should be. I'm going to get back to this later, but there are a lot of ways in which this is kind of the quintessential, ideal Wolverine past referencing story, at least in my opinion. But before we get there, we need to talk about what Wolverine is wearing. Oh, holy shit, yes. So he's got a white undershirt and a Hawaiian shirt open over that and sea green knee-length shorts, which show off his really hairy legs, with what appear to be white knee socks rumpled down, brown leather hiking boots, and a cowboy hat with little gem rock thingies on the band. Uh, medallions. Medallions, I guess. God, what a fucking icon. Oh, for real. I'm going to start dressing like that. Uh, and he is dressed that way, well, because it's awesome, but also to go drop in on an old friend. No, he's dressed that way through the entire 
entire story. Like, let's be fair, this is what Wolverine packed. Um, but he does, he does in fact stop first to visit an old friend, and that is Detective Antonio Vargas, a man with a lovely mustache and a wife who disappeared without a trace some years ago. And he and Logan give each other shit for about a minute, and then they laugh, and then they hug. So if you've been waiting for years and years and years and years and years for a comic in which Wolverine, while wearing shorts, excitedly hugs someone, this is for you. I, I think therefore, Jay, I am included in you in that sentence, because this is great. And I love them together. They have such an easy friendship. You really get the impression that they were tight a long time ago, and now they're seeing each other, and like they're, they've changed, but that connection is still there. It is wonderful. Also, uh, Antonio Vargas, I, he's probably named after Antonio Vargas, who was an actor famous for playing Huggy Bear, the street informant in Starsky and Hutch in the 70s. Doesn't look much like that guy. I, I heard all of those words in an order. I'm not sure what they mean, but I'll take your word for it. Well, let's get to the awesome stuff. Now, Logan and Vargas were friends during the year that, that Logan lived in Rio, specifically during which uh, Logan was the legendary bouncer at Vargas's underground bar. And when I say legendary, I mean they wrote a samba about him called The Man of Harsh Business. Holy shit. I am never calling Logan anything else ever again. At least if I can remember. Writers, editors... This is how you do reveals from, of stuff from Wolverine's past. Unexpected details dropped here and there, occasional enthusiastic or, or dreadful reunions, and just a hint of the larger story below. Yes. And also, writers, editors, look, I know we're in the middle of the Sabretooth War and the Wolverine ongoing, but it is not too late to retitle that comic The Man of Harsh Business. So Vargas is having a rough time, speaking of harsh business. He is on the trail of a mass murderer who leaves their victim, victims bitten up and drained of blood. The most recent batch have just turned up, so Logan heads off with Vargas to the scene of the crime, which is a, a little inlet um, with a, a boardwalk over it, um, where where ten you know bloodless victims are floating in the water, and and while they're checking out the crime scene, a great white shark attacks. And actually, a minor correction, they're not bloodless. They're bitten and they're cut up, but there is blood. Their blood hasn't been drained. That's what draws the shark here. And that'll be kind of a plot point. But, um, yep, there's a shark. And what do you do if you're Wolverine and there's a shark? Well, you fight it. And so Wolverine fights a fucking shark. Uh, he, so he first yells at Vargas not to shoot the shark. And then he pops his claws and jumps on it and, and fights it and kills it. And I don't really understand why he does that. Well, he mentions it's to relieve stress, and it's like his nature. Yeah, but this is this is Wolverine who will go way out of his way not to pick fights with animals who are just doing their animal thing. True. I think in this case, story-wise, what it does is it lets Vargas see Logan's claws and his berserker rage, and so that's not a secret anymore. And that can just let them be very open with each other and to have that easy friendship unencumbered by dark pasts. Vargas seems about as bemused as I am by the whole shark fighting thing, but pretty much lets it slide. And refreshed by his shark fight, Wolverine heads off to throw himself headfirst into Carnival. Now, there is an utterly delightful series of Polaroid-style panels of Wolverine being a tourist, and I gotta say, man, Oscar Jimenez is a treasure. 
Oh, he is. Like, Logan's partying with all these scantily clad women and costumed men, and the streets are all crowded, and everybody's smiling madly and sweating. And Logan just has this look of, like, childlike joy on his face as he dances and flirts with everybody, which you never see. But there's one thing left to make Logan's night complete, and that is a street fight. So, to his great pleasure... He is then jumped by a bunch of dudes in an alley, and um, in the morning, Vargas finds him, and they head out for some more investigating. So, from there, let's pause a minute and talk villains. Because by this point in the comic, the villain has already been introduced. Um, I didn't mention, or the villains have already been introduced. I didn't mention them before, because they kind of, they're, they're weird. And I feel like they should kind of have their, their own aside, so let's go there now. The bad guy of this story calls himself Saint Cyrus Leviticus. And as far as I can tell, this is not the name of an actual saint. It is, however, the name of a metal band, um, which formed after this comic, so may in fact be a reference to it. Yeah, I had no idea. I'd never heard of them. They have one album from 2014. But when I saw that in the notes that you'd been taking, Jay, I looked them up, and uh, pretty good. They have an album called Keeper of the Lach. Um, It's like instrumental, guitar-forward, neoclassical metal. It's... um. I, I quite enjoyed it. I don't know anything about the musicians, or possibly single musician based on YouTube. Hard to say. Um, but there you go. Good at guitars, maybe also a Wolverine fan. Now, there were several actual saints, Cyrus, but this dude does not seem to be a direct allusion to any of them. That said, I'm not very well versed in saint stuff, so if you are and you catch something that I missed, I would love to hear it. Now, this Cyrus hears a voice speaking to him and directing his actions, and we will find out eventually that this is the voice of some kind of parasite from space that has embedded itself in his torso. Although it's unclear whether the parasite is actually speaking to him or he's just imagining that it is. But he's not the only villain, well, him and his parasite. There's also his disciple slash buddy slash... I don't know, a victim to an extent, he's kind of a jerk to her, who's a vampire lady named Ezra. But she does show up in mirrors, and she can go out during the day, and apparently all the vampire attacks haven't drained people's blood, so she's not, like, a standard vampire. She's, you know, of the vampires Wolverine has faced, she is, maybe, maybe comes in second. Like, Bloodscream is obviously the best vampire, because he moonlights as a ghost pirate. Sure does. Um, now, Ezra is, however, responsible for all the murders, um, most recently the murders of all of the guys who jumped Wolverine in the alley. Also, as we will find out eventually, she is Vargas's disappeared wife. Yeah, and and when Vargas and Logan get back to Vargas's place after a night of drinking for some additional drinking and, like, camaraderie, and they're singing what I think is maybe, like, a soccer team uh, song— um, Ezra and Cyrus are, are waiting for them in the apartment, and also a zombie who knocks Logan out with a, with a baseball bat. Vargas recognizes Ezra a moment before she kills him. Um, this is after Cyrus gives, gives a little speech and hops out the window. It's fucking tragic. Uh, as Wolverine says, Time changes everything, and death is the ultimate reminder. I can accept that. But friends... I'm never prepared to lose. 
It's so heartbreaking. Like, Logan's hard, expressionless look at Vargas's body is in such contrast to his fun-loving joy from before. And they've only been on panel together for, like, a handful of pages, but their friendship is so believable, and Vargas seems like such a good dude. He's got such a good mustache. I know! Do you think they took his mustache when they killed him? Oh, that would be even less forgivable. Monsters. Anyway, Wolverine swears vengeance for Vargas and or Vargas's mustache. And leaving leaving the funeral, he is set upon once again by the thugs from the alley, only now they're undead. They're trying to take him alive, presumably to their boss, and he figures, all right, this is his best way to get to Vargas's killer. So they have a big fight. Um, they gas him with their jack-o'-lanterns full of neurotoxin that are hanging from chains like some kind of christian catholic censor thing that's no that's some very very green goblin shit if green goblin was catholic maybe green goblin is catholic i don't know actually and logan comes to in cyrus leviticus's hideout um cyrus gives a long weird villain speech about immortality with very strong renfield illusions in the art specifically the thing about you know consuming life by by um the series series of, of predations yeah there's a spider there's a fly you know the huge and Cyrus also introduces his weird parasitic friend. Which is so fleshy and gross. Like, he pulls up his shirt, and there's just this collection of human-like parts organized almost at random. And, uh, bleh, I don't want to touch that thing. Now, Cyrus believes that he is going to achieve immortality by feeding the parasite, quote, the psionic turbulence of thousands of dying souls. And he's going to do this by having his zombies slaughter everyone in the streets. Now. The number of deaths that he cites is specifically 100,000, and that seems like a lot for the number of zombies which we've seen so far. Like, does he have a shit ton more tucked away somewhere? Uh, maybe, maybe. Just warehouses full of zombies. Or uh, maybe the zombies are all going to explode. They're going to spread out, and they're going to explode into zombie parts and, and kill everybody at Carnival that way. Uh, I don't know. I will say, like, this is a great comic— this is not the most credible threat I've seen in a comic. Yeah, the villains in this comic are complete nonsense. And the thing is, I'm kind of okay with that. Like, these are not villains I really want or expect to see return. They're villains who feel like pieces of a one-off story, and sometimes those hit and sometimes they don't. So, speaking of which, it's Ezra's turn now to come show up and villain around. She bites Logan, and she I think she implies that he's gay. And... Because she she bites him and, and is like, why didn't we why didn't we ever dance when we used to hang out in the old days, you and me? Well, maybe I know, maybe I know things about you that you don't even know about yourself. And they fight, and I love how monstrous she gets in this fight. Oh, for real! Like her fingers are all elongated and her teeth are huge, and her face gets all wrinkly and her eyes get like little slits. I I like monstery vampires; those are my favorite vampires. And the whole trope of vampires that get monsterier when they feed, like she totally makes that work, and it's awesome. And Logan gets the better of her. In fact, he is about to kill her, but she leaps out a window and escapes. Which brings us back once again to Carnival, where Logan, topless, fights a lot of zombies, and then I guess steals from some clothes from one of them to ambush Cyrus on a rooftop. I love this! There is literally no reason for him to do so, but he shows up with this purple sweatshirt with zippers and spikes all over it with the sleeves ripped off, and like fingerless gloves and Ninja Turtle-style bandana that just shows his eyes, and this big wide belt and ripped up purple pants. 
And he's like, Hope you don't mind. I borrowed some threads for your undead playmates. We had a good time. I left them all down in the alley. In pieces! This is a good Wolverine. So they fight, and Logan cuts the parasite out of Cyrus's torso and shreds it with his claws, then stabs Cyrus to death, and Carnival continues unabated below. The people who saw assume it's part of the show. And that's really the end of that. Uh, Logan stops on his way out of town to pour out a bottle of scotch on Vargas's grave, not seeing Ezra lurking nearby. And that's it. That is the end of the comic. Yeah, and there's there's no follow-up. We never see Ezra again. Although, Marvel, I know you're about to do that big blood hunt vampire event. You, you can always throw Ezra in, I'm just saying. But, like, that's not the point. It's just a good Wolverine story. Like, it's it's archetypal. It's it's iconic. Like, it's not the most memorable one necessarily, although I think we'll certainly remember the man of harsh business. But it just works. This is specifically a mode of what I think of as the Weird Tales Wolverine stories. Yeah? Yeah, so this is pulp hero Wolverine who travels between settings, fights things, and leaves onto, you know, another adventure. And sometimes they connect together, and sometimes there's bigger ongoing story. And sometimes he shows up in a place, happens to know people, there's backstory alluded to, fights some vampires, and fucks off. Yeah, and this is, you know, you could see it as silly continuity-wise, like, oh, how much how much time did Wolverine even have to have a million different best friends and a million different adventures? I think uh, Murder, She Wrote uh, did that, you know, the main character would always have these long-lost close friends that would show up, uh, but, like, that's not the point. Continuity isn't the point. Yeah, exactly. And with that, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Do you think that mutants as a nation could ever become too much like the Inhumans? Giving into isolationism, superiority, eugenics, slavery, all that kind of thing the Inhumans do. I've seen the comparison between Adelan and Krakoa made a couple of times, so I wanted to ask your thoughts on whether it's fair to compare the two. You know, I don't think so. I think you could see Adelan in some ways as kind of a, a, a boogeyman of what Krakoa could become if it wasn't careful. But the history is so, so different. I mean, the Inhumans were mostly separated from normal humans for almost all of their history, which is like tens of thousands of years, or possibly more. I'm not a big Inhumans uh, reader, but still. Also, eugenics are really, really fundamental to their culture. And they're not for mutants, unless you're like, you know, sinister or, or something. Like, they're not I integral. Yeah, but that's not mutant culture. That's sinister being a big weirdo. That's true. Sinister is a big weirdo. Big jerk, too. But yeah, mutants have been mingled with humanity uh, from the start. I mean, that's the point. They just show up randomly uh, from human parents uh, and stuff. It's only very recently that they've started isolating on Krakoa. And well, uh, I'm just, no spoilers, but the current X-Men story is called Fall of X. So there you go. I know they were on Utopia that one time. That was a little bit isolated, but they still interacted with humanity a ton during that. So I think you can see Adelan as the dark side of where Krakoa could go, but I just don't think that most of the mutants on there have nearly that kind of historical context. They've just had such a different relationship with humanity from, from the start, which I like, because I'm more of an X-Men fan than an Inhumans fan, so I want to like the X-Men. Inhumans are cool too, though. The Pariah Effect asks on Tumblr, Spider-Man has inspired a limbo, yes, that limbo, demon to become Wreck-Rap, a web-wanging, wall-prancing spider-demon. Which X-characters need their own rec raps? So I'm going to go ahead and say Nightcrawler. I don't think he's the obvious choice for this, 
but he's both a really distinctive character, character with a really distinct fighting style, really distinct look, really distinct personality, and he's a character who looks fundamentally sort of stereotypically demonic. So I love the idea of a demon or demon-adjacent character seeing Nightcrawler in action and deciding that they too can be a swashbuckling hero. Oh, that would be great. And also you have your Spider-Man connection because he was just the uncanny Spider-Man very briefly, the creepy crawler. So even better. If I had to pick someone, I'm going to say Ms. Marvel. She's a very inspiring character and it would be highly entertaining. Like having a fangirl of a a superhero whose whole deal is that she's a fangirl. And it would also be really awkward with her family, which is a staple of good Kamala Khan stories. I also just love at this point, have I mentioned that, um, her being a mutant these days means we can talk about her all the time on the podcast, and that's fucking great because she's the best. You have. Well, it remains true. Uh, also, Sunspot would be fun. It would bring out that entertainingly charismatic arrogance if he had someone who was idolizing him, but also it would be a good opportunity for introspection. I feel like Sunspot would be less likely to have that happen than complain about it not having happened. Oh, you know what? That's actually way better. Okay, good point. Let's go with that. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the microphone goes to Sexy Rogue. My feelings are as mixed as succotash. I don't know whether my desire or my anger are bigger. I keep dreaming of what our reunion's gonna be like, Siri Vulgaris. In one dream, you're as apologetic as a firecracker vendor at a mid-July funeral— but I ain't buying it and wallop you into the stratosphere. And in another, I can't help but melt against your heat like butter on fresh cornbread, losing myself, Siri, against the truth of your skin. But, but can't a woman's emotions range as wide as the Mississippi? Because it ain't just Siri on my mind. Peter McGrath, I don't know whether to fume or fawn. Why, the way you acted could make a bishop mad enough to kick in stained glass windows. But at the same time, you looking at me and smiling makes me want to get as lost in those eyes and those arms and not get found until talking just don't seem important no more. But now I guess that Cajun's back, so Siri and Peter, I'll be in touch. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps. Next week, the X-Men begin their hunt for the most dangerous game. Charles Xavier. Charles Xavier.